Forletta Investigates. Welcome to Forletta Investigates. Investigative security consultant Larry Forletta is a highly decorated former DEA agent and member of the Maryland State Police. Forletta Investigates aims to provide information on real-life encounters involving law enforcement, drug trafficking, and actual investigations. Listen to the show every Tuesday as we approach topics of crime and other issues affecting our communities with someone who has worked within law enforcement for over 25 years. Here is your host, Larry Forletta. Hello, uh, I want to welcome our guest, and I'm fortunate and honored to have him on our podcast. Our guest was labeled by 60 Minutes as America's top undercover agent. Our guest is Michael Levine. As part of my monologue, Mike, I mentioned that I believe most agents do. You agree that the success of DEA and their agents uh, really go unheralded. Oh, yeah. And before we go any further in, into our show, uh, I do want to mention something that uh, it's heartfelt to all of us, uh, not only as uh, friends and family, but I, I do want to mention that uh, uh, Mike's son, Sergeant Keith Levine, was a uh, New York City police officer. Uh, he was off duty at the time, and as a real hero does, he saw a crime being committed in an armed robbery. And unfortunately, uh, Keith lost his life. Um, so he has joined uh, many of the former NYPD officers that are now called uh, New York Angels. So uh, with that, I'll continue our show. So Mike has published articles and books in the New York Times. Uh, he's considered one of the national bestsellers, and some of his books are called Deep Cover, The Big White Lie, Fight Back. Uh, Mike has appeared on dozens of nationally televised shows, including 60 Minutes, Good Morning America, and just so many others. Um, and then eventually we'll, we'll get into uh, Mike's expertise. So, Mike, I, I want to talk a little bit about your drug background because you spent more than 25 years with DEA. So if you could talk a little bit about that, then we'll go into some other issues here. Uh, the saying about... A DEA agent. There's DEA agents and there are New York DEA agents. In those years, I was proudly a New York DEA agent because I had born and brought up South Bronx and spoke Spanish, uh, which, as I learned quickly, made me of extra value as an undercover. Now, it's important for people who don't really aren't uh, aware of the history of DEA. There was a time when prosecutors would not use criminal informants to testify. And that led to what we used to call in New York, I guess maybe it was all over the country, duking in. Duking in was you have an informant start a case, and then the prosecutor would say, we have to get an undercover in to do the testimony because I can't put this dirt bag on the stand. And <laughs> so I was one of the guys who became what was called undercovers. There were a, a few of us in New York. There were a bunch of us in the agency. That, that was what we did. An informant would make a case. Uh, I'd get a call from a division leader. But we need a Spanish-speaking guy, Mike. You want to do a? You, can you do a buy today? And this would go. At times, uh, I was making three, four, four buys a day in New York City, and 
it was a it was hairy. I mean, it was extremely, extremely dangerous. I, I'll admit, I was afraid most of the time, but I was addicted to the adrenaline. It was an, a, an incredible high. So I went to a room, usually unarmed, because you didn't want to <laughs> you you didn't want to have anything that gave you away as exactly what they were staring at you, trying to figure out you are. So you go unarmed, and everybody around you had guns money, drugs, and you were acting with your audience a few inches from your face. And many, many of the agents and cops who died in undercover were died in these scenarios. But like I said, I was just addicted to it. When uh, it started to be dangerous, well, I guess the, the, the case that really started to go the other way. That is where we started using the dirt bags, the informants, and people got confused as who was, who was an undercover agent for DEA. I, I think today, according to the cases that come across my desk, good portion of undercover work is now done by the dirt bags, the informants. They have to be controlled because they lie, they sell drugs, they steal drugs, they'll steal your money because they're criminals. But they can go out undercover, take dope, do anything they want to get paid by the government or by stealing one way or the other. So this is the sort of case that I get now as a, as a trial consultant. Uh, criminal informants who uh, do things like set up people and trap, uh, just to call me out the government or con favors out of the government. And that goes on, as I said, right, right to this day. But in those years, I think the case of Kiki Camarena was in uh, When Kiki was arrested and tortured to death by Mexican police, and it got such headlines, the government, EEA, I think, became, at least from my perspective, they became risk averse. And we started using uh, informants again, as, as I said. But that never left me. There was a saying in those days when you got, I was a supervisor for 17 years, that when you got a new agent, you wanted to know if he can do one of two things, work informants or buy dope. Buy dope meant go undercover. And that, that's, that, that was my beginnings with the agency. Uh, what else can I say about it? My son, my my boy, was killed. Uh, deep Cover, the book Deep Cover had just come out, and and uh, Deep Cover was about how an undercover team in Operation Trifecta. These are all undercover agents with using an informer the way they're supposed to be used, made right to the top of the drug world. That is, we were dealing with the Mexican government. The next, this the grandson of an ex-president of Mexico in uniform on camera, uh, with the, top of the Bolivian cartel in Bolivia, and then in Panama. And in Panama, we met the the top money launderer. In fact, he was he was uh, Manuel Noriega's money launderer. And we already had enough to take them all down, but we were about to get a complete destruction of factories in in Bolivia. It was all engineered. It was called Operation Trifecta. We had the military down there. We had pilots ready. And 
that's when, as I describe in the book, it's, I, I'm going to end up in my of the book, and that's it, and I don't want to do that. Uh, when the book came out, what happened was they start the case started to be destroyed, not come apart, started to be destroyed. We stopped getting support. Uh, the Attorney General of the United States, and mind you, Larry, this is a New York Times bestseller, blew our covers. We had undercover people in Bolivia, in Mexico, and the Attorney General of the United States, Edwin Meese, called the Attorney General of Mexico, who was one of our targets, and warned him about our undercover team. <laughs> uh, so now I put that in the New York Times bestseller when Edwin Meese was suing anybody that said anything negative. And I'll be honest, I was, I was kind of frightened, but it was there. It was backed up. It was documented. And that's when I started to write the book. And when the book came out, I'm going to probably reveal this for the first time anywhere right now. When the book came out was in uh, 1991, the year that my son was killed. I became really controversial in DEA. The guys who had done the undercover work, worked overseas, and had run headlong into central intelligence or State Department interests that resulted in the protecting of these drug dealers. It was literally DEA, the guys who wanted to do the job, versus CEA, CIA, versus State Department, versus other factors or other factions that were actually supporting the same drug dealers we thought were the enemies. And I was in fury. Honestly, I, I wrote deep cover as it was happening. I, you know, I was, I'm well trained by DEA and other agencies. Uh, it, in, in fact, I was sent to a CIA on informants, human intelligence. So I documented everything, it's documented meticulously. I was hoping it would go before a grand jury. I didn't want to write a bestseller. I wanted people to jail for what I was seeing. And some of those people were in suits and in offices. That's what I was that's what I was hoping for. So the book became extremely controversial. So controversial that when my son, a New York City policeman, was killed, and I was in St. Patrick's Cathedral, which was a massive cathedral in New York City, it was filled police from all over, filled with police and agents from all over the country. There were only a handful of DEA agents from New York there. And one of them confided in me. And I don't want to say his name. And I don't know, I, I can't be sure it's true. So how can I back up that a, a high DEA official in New York or everybody to stay away from my son's funeral? Now, I was probably one of the most painful moments in my life. And, you know, I just started to think about this one we were going to have this show. So I think this is the first time I actually have talked about it. But God rest my, my, my son's soul. I have another son who's in, in uh, uh, homeland, homeland Security right now, and he's, in, he's stationed in uh, Miss, uh, Wisconsin. And thank you for being... Cheaper than a psychiatrist for me this morning, for a letter. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> hey, and the, the big white lie, you know, I went, actually, my history as an undercover agent began during the Vietnam War. 
I was sent undercover into Bangkok, Thailand. It began in New York City with a, with the arrest of a guy by the name of John Edwardson smuggling uh, three kilos of heroin in a false bottom suitcase. John Edward Davidson, I, I was on a response group that went out to JFK where he had been busted with the with the uh, with with the heroin in his in the suitcase. I I managed to flip Edward John Edward Davidson. He that night we were on a plane with the heroin to his financier back with him Trupkin in Gainesville, Florida. We made a successful control delivery. I hope a lot of people understand what this what this is without me having to explain it. We, well, uh, just go into a little bit, of Mike, because I don't. Some of them may not understand what flip means and controlled deliveries. So, yeah, go ahead, okay. expound on it a little bit. Okay, uh, John Edward Davidson was a GI. He was a a, a combat veteran in Vietnam who had become a heroin smuggler. There was an enormous amount of heroin in the in the Gold Triangle area, and he began. Uh, he, he began smoking heroin seven, eight trips he made with three kilos a trip. In those years, he was making uh, probably close to a million each trip. Mm. And he, that, that was, the, that was the, uh, the finances associated to heroin trafficking in those, in those days. It was, it was extremely expensive. And John flipped. Uh, when I, when I, part of this response team, I went out and I sat down and interrogated him and, uh, got him to agree to assist me and you know, promise I will assist you as much as I can. That night he took me on by plane to Gainesville, a swamp in Gainesville, Florida, where he had a luxury tour and he was to deliver the three kilos of heroin to the man who financed the whole operation, this fellow by the name of Alan Trupkin. We ma- we successfully made the control delivery of the Trupkin. And now we're in, in the back of the, uh, outside the court in Gainesville, Florida. And uh, John, Ed- John Edward Davidson and I talking, and I say, well, where did you get it? What's what's your source in, in, in Bangkok? And he explains who they are and how he was working. And I said, can you can you introduce me to them? I don't I don't know if uh, I don't know if my boss is going to go for this, but I'd like to go there and and buy heroin from them. And he said, sure. So we took a picture uh, at a palm tree back at the courthouse, and the the uh, the method of introducing somebody to these people was he took a picture of me. We had arms around each other. We cut the picture in half. He sent it to Bangkok. And said, "I'm hot now. Uh, I want to send my associate Mike, and we got a letter back from them saying, come on, come on now.' At, with, with this, I went to at that time my boss was uh, I was in the hard narcotics smuggling unit of uh, customs, which was a predecessor to DEA. We all got drafted drafted into DEA in '73, but this was about '71." And uh, I end up, Al Seeley, who was a man, he said, you think you can do it? I said, I want to try. And uh, off, off I went. I was on a tourist. I was with an American passport. I was telling nobody. By that time, around that time, you might, this is probably before your time, Larry, but there was a, a war between customs and, and the then 
uh, the BNDD over right. Turk. Terrible war. So the the first thing we had to do was send me into into Bangkok and not tell anybody. You got this? I'm going into Bangkok on a on a U.S. passport under my right name, and I'm going to meet drug dealers and start dealing drugs. But nobody knows. Yeah, <laughs> I laugh now. Sure. So I get I get to I get to Bangkok and I meet. Joe Jenkins, a wonderful guy. He was he was in charge in Bangkok, and he had one arm. So I thought I was in a bad move, working for a one-armed agent in Bangkok, and nobody knows I'm there. So I, first thing I did was drunk, <laughs> just yeah. just to see if this is real. <laughs> and then I contacted uh, the these were two Chinese drug dealers. And I was staying at the Siam Intercontinental Hotel. They came over, meet me, pick me up, and they believed that I was the tutti frutti of the mafia from the United States, and they wanted to do this with me. And these guys were a lot bigger than anybody thought. Uh, the, uh, I'm trying to remember, Liang Se Tu, was one, and, and uh, the other, the other guy was I, I can't, I can't think of his name right now, but I have. Uh, up on the net, you'll find it. I have an undercover photo that Joe Jenkins took of me dealing with these guys in the restaurant of the Siam Intercontinental Hotel. Uh, it's 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 up there on uh, on one of my websites, and we had no problem. In fact, they liked me so much they took we. I I hung out with them for a couple of days. At one point, I went into Cambodia uh, on a, on another possible drug dealer deal and i thought i'm i'm in heaven here that's that's how crazy it was larry i'm in mm. heaven i can make i can make cases and my at that time in my life my brother brother david was a heroin addict and uh i believed in everything i president nixon i believe this is the war and i and i i was a front thank god that you put me out here that i could do this that's how fanatical fanatically motivated i was well the next thing that happens is the uh, we're, we're moving toward a big deal and i i've got them convinced that if we could come up with a route we could put a lot of heroin into new york through me they now want me to go with them to chiang mai that's up in northern thailand that's now it's a it's a tourist spot but in those years it was up it was the end of the heroin trail basically you had these Hmong tribesmen who were trafficking in massive amounts of uh, opium and uh, an opium product and they would bring it into Chiang Mai Chiang Mai was the factory that's where they converted the uh, opium base to heroin from Chiang Mai from Chiang Mai it it went all over the world but they, they they wanted to bring me to the factory. And I, no, I don't know American agent. I didn't think had ever gone that far to go. This is Vietnam War, Chiang Mai, uh, all the fables of heroin running wild through our soldiers in Vietnam. And I, I don't know. I, I I I got kind of crazed. And all of a sudden, once my reports indicated that I needed to go to Chiang Mai and I would, people now people coming up to date on exactly what I was doing, people in government. Now people in government included central intelligence. 
suddenly I'm getting no support, no money. I couldn't even pay my hotel bill. Uh, Joe Jenkins is telling me he doesn't know what the holdup is. And when things are getting real critical and I'm starting to look like a complete, I don't know, curse on this at all or, or what? Can I say shit like bullshit? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. You could say bullshit, I guess. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, when I was starting to look like a bullshitter in a situation where being a bullshitter is deadly dangerous, I pulled in the American Embassy in Bangkok about three o'clock in the morning. And, uh, you know, I walked through the streets of Bangkok that night, checking my tail, watching to see if anybody's following me. What the hell is coming off? Why am I coming? Joe, Joe said, you just have to come in. Don't, don't talk on the phone. Just come in. And I show up in the embassy. Say it's about 3.30. And I meet first central intelligence agent. And he was like out of a Tom Clancy movie. You know, like the, uh, the combat fatigues and all this bullshit. And he, he wrapped brown glasses. And there we are in, an, in Joe Jenkins' office. And he says to me very simply, you're not going to Chiang Mai. And I didn't understand. I was taken aback. What do you mean I'm not going to Chiang Mai? And he said, we can't protect you up there. Well, I didn't know you were protecting me at all. I, I didn't know you had anything to do with this. How come? He said, I'm, you military. He said, we have your record. I had gotten out of the military, you know, not too many years before that. And he said, you don't know the whole picture. So what we're asking you to do is wrap this up here. That is the people who, people order up a sample, order up a kilo of heroin, and we're going to arrest them on the delivery. We, who's we? And, okay, uh, I had to admit, uh, I, I, was, I was military police. Uh, I understand the, so the whole concept of no, you don't know. You follow orders, and actually, I was a I was a good military guy. I I, I actually followed orders. Uh, the two guys who had been dealing with me delivered a kilo of heroin to me. I don't know if you remember Tommy O'Grady. Yes, Tommy O'Grady. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's a great Tommy O'Grady story. So here I'm. I I first meet Tommy O'Grady who's in there, and he's. We're going to have a bust in front of the Siam Intercontinental Hotel. And Tommy tells me, he says, these are the most corrupt people. You, you, you don't understand how, how bad the Bangkok Thai cops are. They are as corrupt as could be. And with that being said, we come down to zero hour, and the two guys show up at the Siam Intercontinental Hotel. I the signal. And nothing happens. They're right across this. It was like Times Square. They're on the other side of a, a massive street, uh, like Times Square. And, and they've got the package of dope. They're waving for me. And I'm signaling for the Thai cops at this point are supposed to go in and make the arrest. Well, they're not moving. Who moves? Tommy O'Grady comes out of nowhere. And he's running across the street, dies on top of these two guys. And then the Thai cops move. That's an American cop in Bangkok, Thailand. Should have got some kind of a medal of honor for that. And and he he actually is the guy who busted these two people who were, who were dealing dope with me. Okay. 
they go down. Uh, I eventually had to go back to Thailand to testify against them. And we also, I was able to identify the man making false representations. So we got him too. He was arrested. Uh, so I've got one, two. Uh, Chiang Mai is protected. The factory is protected. I didn't realize that Central Intelligence was uh, protecting them for any reason. This took years to understand exactly what happened to me. Uh, I'm I'm given a U.S. Treasury Special Act Award for the Attorney General. I've been put in for the Attorney General's uh, Award numerous times, and I was always under investigation. <laughs> so <laughs> that that go that goes with being an undercover. <laughs> uh, and uh, I go back to the U.S. Uh, and I you know, I'm kind of swept away with my own accolade. I'm thinking, wow, that was something. First, people tell me that's the first time anybody did an undercover case where you got the financier, you got the smuggler, you got the source, you all do one worldwide sweep. And I, it was great. I think, you know, I think I got a 200 check <laughs> and, and, a, and a plaque. So now DEA is is created no this is still still uh months before dea is created what happens then is al Seely, my boss says you're my you're my thailand you're my bangkok guy so we, we get uh a detective luke culver that's an informer and he comes in with this guy uh, who was uh another uh, uh, he had a strange lopsided face he was uh Another guy smuggling dope, and he starts to tell Lou Culver and me about this organization, Herman Jackson organization, smuggling heroin into the U.S. in the bodies of our KIAs from Vietnam. This is the first time anybody ever heard this was missing woman. So you know, now we cut to this movie that was made. Uh, American gangster or some bullshit. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, you know, body smuggling and the whole thing is a lie. The whole movie was a lie. That case, that case was never made. It, that was that case was stopped by the CIA because as it out, the source of heroin coming in the bodies was the same people in Chiang Mai that I was prevented from at least identifying. So we had, we had, in my, from my point of view, I, you know, I, I wish I could have testified before Congress. I wish I could have testified before some court of law to say, you know, America, you get left. This is just BS. We have guys dying out there, working undercover. My brother is a heroin addict. All of this. In the meantime, they're really protected. Well, the why came out. Historically, after the why was the people smuggling or the people trafficking in heroin across the northern, the northern, uh, the the northern Thailand and and through Cambodia, etc. The the heroin trail, they were our allies in Vietnam, and we couldn't do anything to damage. That's uh, Congress at that time had said we're not going to support this anymore. Uh, Central intelligence. These were central intelligence allies, so they literally give 
these people a license to smuggle drugs to survive and be our allies. That was the choice. By the way, that's the choice we have now in Afghanistan. But that was the choice then, it is now. Uh, yeah. I, 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 ran, I ran into the same, so but what happened? I overtalked this case because this case brings me right to, to Buenos Aires. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta cut me off. <laughs> I haven't been drinking, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have any questions? Yeah, you, you have any questions about what I've been rambling about so far? No, no. I want to talk about. No, Mike. Um, really, um, I always like to let our guests uh, talk as much as they want, um, but I do know that there's there's always challenges when you work undercover, um, and especially, you know, back in the day uh, when uh, things were starting to progress. And eight, then uh, DEA was subsequently formed by, by President Nixon. Correct. Um, and even after that, um, before, you know, there's always been, and I don't think it, it's existed as it did as much today, but even when I was on a job, there was always squabbles between uh, federal agencies about, you know, who's going to do what, who's going to, you know, who's going to get the credit and, you know, the, and the beat goes on. And, oh, and yeah. I think, and I think a lot of those attitudes have changed, but I, I guess one of the biggest issues is, you know, was budget. And so you've got, you know, a variety of federal agencies competing for the same budget, the drug budget. And so, you know, who could outshine the other agency? And, and that's kind of what happened. But, I, and as I look at back, even in my career, I think a lot of a lot of things have changed when uh, when I retired. I don't know. Uh, I can't say, Larry. I I still I just don't know. Uh, I run into cases now as an expert witness. I get the, the case files on my desk, uh, and I still see indications of the same thing going on, and it comes out in these trials. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. it does. So oh, I, I I'm not know. saying it's yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying it's non-existent, but I said it's an improvement <laughs> from the way that I, it used to be. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess. I I really don't know. I, I know that uh, when I got tested after DEA, uh, I just, I couldn't stay, I could not stay in the controversy because I loved the job. Right. I thank God for this job. I, I It gave me a life that I, I wake up now, even after all these years and think, did that really happen? Yeah, I'm glad I wrote some of it down, and I thank DEA for that. But be able to get some of the most heartbreaking experiences of my life at the same time. Uh, some, so a lot of experiences of pure treachery by people in our own ranks, pure absolute treachery. And uh, you know, one of that was with the, the murder of Kiki Camarena. I, I, it, it, it's. Uh, if, uh, rather than go into that whole thing, it's in deep cover. Exactly, names are named, the whole thing, and it, it's, it would be so libelous if I couldn't back it up. And I had to pass a libel reading with, with the attorneys, the publishing attorneys, which is worse than going through a pre-trial with a with a prosecutor. They, every you have to prove every word. You have to have documentation, recordings. Well, I was well trained. I, very experienced, so I, I was constantly documenting. That's all I did. Documented right. my whole life, mm -hmm. uh, and it's there. I urge people who really want to, you know, to, to 
read Deep Cover and understand that this wasn't meant to be a, a bestseller book. It did become a New York Times bestseller, but that wasn't what it was meant to do. It was being written as it, and the purpose of it was to get Congress, get, let's put this, don't put me before uh, a grand jury. Don't put, this is what I do. This is what I did. This is what I still do. Sure. This is, this is a case report, not just a book. It is a case report, every bit of it documented, corroborated, and yet it went nowhere. Why? Because there's a lot of interests that are compete against the drug. The DEA was always much too good for what they want. We, we went much further than in power wanted us to go. And we keep doing that. We come up, we have, over the years, we've come up with the incredible investigative prowess, incredible undercover prowess. We have, we had, I don't know about this day, I, you know, I'm, I'm told the job has changed so drastically. Well, I, I don't know, but I do know it was a great pride for all of us how far we were able to go without, sure. the, without the accolades, without the public affairs right. offices. You know, I, I in those years I didn't get credit. I didn't get them. You understand? I wanted to go up to Thailand, to to Chiang Mai, and and uh, give enough intelligence that the military could go in there and wipe them. That's what I wanted to do. I, I don't care if I, my name was ever known. That's what I, you know, I had a brother who was a heroin addict, and so I wrote these books. Both both the both books, the Big White Light and Deep Cover, were written as they happened. So I think the Washington Post said, you want the best fly on the wall, look at how these, these international undercover cases go, read. That was one right. of the reviews. And what I, what, what, what I realized is I didn't intend it to be that, but that's what it was. <laughs> well, you know, um, as, as you move forward from, you know, uh, back in the day when you were doing the undercover stuff, Mike, uh, and know the challenges in different countries. I think the challenge still remains in Mexico uh, with all the corruption that, that's there. Um, and oh, yeah. as, I, as I understand it now, uh, there's agents, I think somewhere around the number of 40, uh, that may be leaving Mexico uh, because of the political issues that uh, that have taken place, including the uh, defense minister who was indicted, arrested here in the United States, and then uh, the attorney general, Bill Barr, had released him back to Mexico. And uh, the Mexicans uh, didn't prosecute him and, and dropped the charges. And yeah. so, you know, they made it appear that uh, DEA did something wrong when, in fact, you have a corrupt uh, defense minister. Yeah, they, they did the, exactly the same. They tried to do exactly the same thing with Operation Trifecta. We went into Mexico. We dealt with the Mexican military. We had them on camera. But w what really evolved out of that case was that we went too far. Uh, at the time we were doing it, NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, was on board. Congress was fighting over it. It was not a popular bill. And if, while I was undercover, on camera, the bodyguard for the income president, Salinas de Gotari, is telling me if this deal, which was a 15-ton uh, cocaine deal, if this deal goes through, we're going to open the door for your organization, my mafia. 
through Mexico into the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's a promise from the body of the press. Well, that's on camera. Right. That was that was that was that went to the attorney general of the United States via uh, an Air Force jet. The next day, he calls the attorney general of Mexico and warns him about us. What's the priority? He, that could not get to that an Ameri- undercover American agents, because it wasn't just me, we were a team, Operation Trifecta team, a team of undercover agents, uh, including an undercover customs agent, Jorge Urquico, who's a wonderful guy. Uh, and the, these people lived through this with me. And what what's the upshot of that? Well, NAFTA, you could not, you could not in the headlines that the president of Mexico was allegedly promising an undercover DEA agent who was posing as the head of a mafia to wide open the door for drugs through Mexico into the U.S. And you could use the military because I had made a deal with the military. And, the, and as, as I documented in the book, the military was cutting down trees and preparing landing fields for cocaine-laden planes flying from Bolivia into Mexico. And that was all done. Now, the attorney general, the first person that overtly moved to kill the case was the attorney general of the United States. The motivation, now we look back and we see very simply a financial one, economic. Not that he yeah. was making money. It was an economic, uh, economic concerns that were far more important than drug concerns, than war on drugs. But you can't tell that to the people who die. Believing this thing is real. Uh, so I, I, I don't see any difference now. We still have the same thing. We still have the concerns. Uh, you know, on camera, at that time, we had the Contras uh, being trained by the Mexican military. So on camera, this guy, is the, the uh, Colonel, uh, Colonel Carranza, he's in uniform, and he's looking over the map. This is all on video. And he's pointing where, in, where my landing fields are going to be prepared for the drug planes. And points to one area, he says, oh, here we're training the Contras. Well, that couldn't come out. None of that could come out. So what do you do? You kill the drug case. Yep. The agent's not, if the agent's dying or not, is irrelevant. You kill the drug case. Yeah. Well, the drug cases were always expendable in the, in the, in the political uh, perspective. And uh, yeah. I think that's, that still takes place. I don't think that's, uh, think that's ever going to change. No, I don't. No, it won't. Uh, I don't think. Not not as long as. Oh, I, I don't know. I'm not claim to to. I, I don't even claim to understand uh, the morality of these people who they believe they they are fighting a more important war, like the CIA going all the way back to the Vietnam War. Uh, when I was working undercover down there, the CIA believed their war was more important. In fact, the CIA agent whom I spoke to said to me, "Our country." Our country has priorities. You don't know the whole. And I, I had to agree. I don't. I didn't know. I don't know really. I can only tell, I can only guess about what the motivation is now by looking at what's going on now through the lens of what I've lived through. Sure. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's where we are, Larry. Well, the unfortunate part about it, we've lost thousands and thousands of Americans uh, to dying from drug overdoses, uh, you know, and now we're seeing uh, more than before with fentanyl 
coming into the country from China through Mexico. And, uh, you know, a lot of our, we're losing a lot of our kids. And, uh, you know, sometimes when we look through our career and through that lens, uh, you begin to wonder if there's really ever was a drug war. Um, and, how, you know, how do we put a stop to it? Yeah, you know, yeah. because there's proponents now out there for legalization of, of drugs. Well, if there ever was, that's a good question. I mean, for those of us who were down there in the pits, I don't even want to say the front. We were in the pits. We were really where the bodies were falling. We were really, and, and, and some of us were dying. And for those of us, it was real. There was nothing fake about it. It was all real. And to uh, politicians, it's not real. To some of the politicians. To some of the suits, even some of the suits who are still behind desks in DEA, FBI, it's, I, I don't believe they approach it like it's real. Politics becomes more important, more real than yeah. than the guys and the men and the women and and blood and guts and the, the reality of the situation. And my drug and and I and I got plenty of adrenaline highs, but. I thought I was going to get anything else, really. Ah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about the history of what I'm through. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure what it uh, uh, portends for the rest of us. I, I just don't know. Well, Mike, as, as we all know, uh, uh, all of us take another road after we retire from DEA and a government. And, uh, I, you know, the majority of us um, have uh, a lot of respect for the agency that we worked for and enjoyed our enjoyed our job but now uh we all move on afterwards and so i want to get into a little bit about uh your own business now that you've started and uh you know as being as <laughs> yeah. being an ex as being an expert witness uh in in many different types of cases dealing with you know confidential informants and uh police shootings and uh, yeah. I know you're, you're a well-recognized expert in, in all of the above. So I, I'd like to maybe draw you to your attention a little bit about uh, some things that have been going on in our country and, you know, the, the, the controversies that come up and the shootings uh, that law enforcement uh, have been involved with. And I know we could talk about this all day, so we'll, we'll try to narrow it down to maybe yeah. a couple of cases. But one of them to kind of, uh, stands out in my mind was one that you were involved with was a shooting in uh, in Georgia, uh, yeah, and it involved uh, uh, an officer there by the name of Robert Olson. So if you could just uh, expound a little bit about that particular case, yeah, I I was retained uh, by the uh, DeKalb County or, or the Fulton County, I forget which uh, uh, district attorney police shooting. Uh, they, they, they've been calling on me regularly for the last four years or so. And in this particular case, I actually went down to uh, Georgia where the shooting occurred. And I worked with the district attorney's investigators to go over exactly what happened before I could come to a conclusion. And uh, back to my training in DEA, again, God bless DEA for what they gave me. Uh, they uh, they 
they made me an OPR, Office of Professional Responsibility Inspector. I spent a lot of time in internal affairs because in the uh, in the beginning of DEA, they shut down internal affairs, in, at least in New York, and made it a duty of group supervisors to conduct internal affairs investigations. So for a lot of years, I was trained in all the standards and practiced and had a lot of experience in the standards and techniques of how you review these kinds of incidents, look for. So basically, I employed everything I learned in DEA in my work uh, for the, these district attorney's offices. Now, in the case of Olsen, Olsen shot uh, and killed an African-American young guy, a veteran, just who had mental problems. And the, the, the fellow was running around naked and uh, Olsen was sent out there and told him, stop. Uh, I'm giving you a rough shot, rough slashes of the case. Sure. And mm-hmm. uh, it, Anthony, I think, I'm forgetting his last name. An- Anthony ran at Olsen, even though Olsen yeah. was telling him, stop. And Olsen shot him and killed him. It was Anthony Hill. Anthony Hill. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, and so I had to go live through it. I had to, I had to walk through it. See, see, the idea of a use of force case is that you have to, it, use of force, use of deadly force in this country and in a lot of uh, Western countries has to be a last resort. And the only time y- you are sh- legally, uh, legally and morally, uh, permitted to take a life reasonably, I'm going to underline reasonably fear for your life. Now, from that standpoint, I began to review the case. And in accordance with my training, I went over actually all the statements. That they, and you have to look at how, how do I know if you reasonably feared for your life? I've got to go over everything you said, everywhere you're quoted by another officer, every statement you made. And what, I, what I began to find was that uh, this officer had made statements contradicted himself in other statements. And these were critical statements about what he was thinking at the time, what he saw. Uh, and he would say one thing and then say another thing. And then on camera, uh, I, w- I was able to detect uh, instances that clearly contradicted what he was saying. I went through the exact route he took going to the, the, the shooting site. Um, the bottom line of the whole thing was that I found indications of false reporting. You, you can hardly blame the guy, false reporting, because he killed the guy and was was trying to uh, justify it as best as he could. You know, sure. I've, always come, I've, I've always come to the conclusion that there are people, and I saw this in DEA, who should not have their, their, their fear factor, their fear tolerance is too low to give them a gun. They shouldn't be out there with guns because they're, they're, their gun is out, their hands on the trigger, their, their eyes are wide, uh, with the, leaders, the slightest of provocation. So, in fact, I wrote an article about that. I think you, 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 you might want to pick it up. It's called um, That Nightmare Moment. I wrote it for the LA Times. And in it, I concluded that the, the key to a lot of shootings 
are people who shouldn't be put out there with guns in the first place because they just don't have the tolerance of fear or they don't have uh, the background that would, that would lead them to be controlled in really stressful, frightening situations. They shouldn't be trouble. There's no, I don't think there's still any way to test this. So people have to be watched. Uh, I have a, I have a case. I have a case now where uh, I'm reviewing a case there, an officer, I won't even say where or who, but an officer killed two people on the line of duty in a, probably has the record for the state. And each of these were misdemeanors. One was a traffic violation and one at most was drunk, drunk and disorderly. So you, if you start with that, you, is there something wrong here? How come in this little state, <laughs> right. two people, and you just, you, so you start to look for something wrong? Well, in this, in this case, Anthony Hill, Anthony Hill was obviously mentally disturbed. Uh, this particular officer, Olson, he had undergone crisis intervention training. That means he was specifically trained mm-hmm. to handle situations like this. And he was he was the guy that you call when you had situations like this. So what do I do? I pull, I pull up the, uh, the training for CIT uh, CIT officers. What training? And what I found was that he violated all the training of his own of, uh, of his own specialty. And the only reason I could conclude was that he was scared. He was just he lost control. Totally lost control. Bottom line of all it was, the killing was unjustified, and he had made a bunch of false statements uh, to try and justify it. And that was my testimony before the grand jury, and uh, he was indicted, and and unfortunately for him, I think he was, he had been a guy who was on a death job most of his career, and then the year or two before this happened, he was suddenly put on the street. So, you know, I stop and think about some of the DEA bosses that I've had. If there was something on the street, <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to be on the block. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> and and, and that's, that's what happened. Uh, what else can I tell you about that case? I, you know, I feel, I, I feel terrible for the guy because I think really it was the department. They shouldn't have, uh, well, they should have been somehow observant of the fact that he really shouldn't be out there with a gun. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind, of, yeah. that's kind of the biggest problem that, that I think over the years that law enforcement has faced. And you're right. There are some people who probably should not have a gun. Uh, and I, I think, does it come down to training? Does it come down to the proper screening? You know, is there enough psychological testing? I don't know how you can uh, distinguish that. You know, that's the problem. And in fact, that's what I wrote in the article. I don't know that there is a way to predetermine somebody's fear tolerance level. And that is critical because the whole notion of killing in the line of duty is you fear when you fear for your life. Now, yeah. what, 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 what do you, Larry Folletta, fear for your life? And what makes me, Mike Levine, fear for my life may be two different things. Yes. I, grew up, I, I grew up in the South Bronx. Uh, I, was, I, I had a very violent upbringing. And uh, I was used to street people by the time I became a DEA agent. I was used to the loud and, the, and people and you know, and most of it bullshit, but I was used to it. Yeah. But if you took a guy, let's say from 
uh, text from, I don't know, uh, Idaho or Iowa. He put him his first to duty in New York and he's working in the South Bronx. Yeah. He's in a whole, he's in a whole world he may not be prepared for. Oh, yeah. Now, other, yeah. Uh, and now how do you measure that? I, I, hope, I think you should pay, uh, you know, the hiring panel should pay some attention to it, some, to talk to some psychological experts to determine if there is a way to see that. Because I see that a hell of a lot of the killings that have come across my desk over the last few years, that the, the answer is, and that nightmare moment, yeah, I, when you get a chance, just read the nightmare moment, Play Times by Mike Levine. It's a very short article, and it talks specifically about what I'm talking about now. And it is, uh, I'm handling cases right now. Of, uh, I have a case right now where a mentally ill drunk guy was shot with a sniper rifle by a cop because he, wow. had, he had a big gun in his hand. Uh, and he was, it, it, it's so, so, so bad. But the answer is this, this particular officer, I suspect, was so over the top fearful that he could take no chances in uh, trying to see what what's what's going on. Is this guy really dangerous? He's, he's obviously drunk and falling down drunk. A woman sure. walked a woman walked past him, and he's cat and he's he he's got this rifle in his hand, and he barely even noticed. He, he can't stand, and he's gunned down because he the officer feared that he was going to shoot people, and you know there's a certain amount of people who say, well, how do you know? You don't, but it's a, if killing is a last resort, and you've got time, you try to take a look. You put uh, undercover pe people in plain clothes near him. You, somebody just walked by him. The, the guy minutes before on camera, he falls down, and some passerby helps him, and his gun up. <laughs> this is not a guy you kill, right? But to, but but, right. but this officer will, uh, with a certain amount of justification, I suppose. That's up to a jury. Say, I feared. I, I couldn't tell what kind of gun it was. I could. I don't know. I just. The, the point is, do you take a life that quickly? It should be well, last resort. Yeah. Sure, I agree. It should always be a last resort, but unfortunately, um, the officers and agents have to make those split-second decisions at times. Oh and, yeah. And, and then, you know, you have to take a look at that as well and what the surrounding circumstances. And, and that's why they bring you in to to make sure that uh, that the shooting was was justified or not justified. Yeah. Um, it, all I can so. Do, yeah. All I do is go give ahead, an Mike. opinion. All, yeah, all sure. I can do is give an opinion. You know, Graham v. Connor was the was the Supreme Court decision that pretty much set up what experts do in this court case. And they said. You know, you shouldn't second guess it, cop. Uh, you have to take all the facts and, and circumstances sure. into consideration, and as viewed by somebody who is a well-trained, experienced officer, that's a right. valid opinion. Sure. And, and uh, other than that, you you have no way of examining when people are killed. And right. I defend and I defend police in in, in these cases, depending on sure. the circumstances. Right. So, so yeah, you know. It's, I tell you what, it's really interesting, very emotional work. I get tied up. 
I really get carried away in these cases, you know, for, for both sides of it. I start to feel sure. a lot for it. But I, I think and I, I stop and think about my life and how I got DEA for it. I mean, DEA gave me a, an amazing and incredible life. Through all the ups and downs and heartaches and fear and, you know, feeling uh, as though I'm targeted. <laughs> and I, I was. <laughs> I, I, it was all somehow really worth it all. Yeah. And I, I, I publicly thank DEA for that. And the people, some of the people I served with, just like to me, to this day, they're gods. Frank White. I mean, some of the people that I served with were just, yeah. they're, what, they're what you should make movies out of. Sure. Well, let's come to our conclusion here, Mike. And it's been a very interesting discussion, to say the least. Um, going back to your son, Keith. Um, yeah. I, I, I know that uh, you and your family had an ongoing fight with the state uh, officials in New York about releasing your son's uh, killer. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So where where are we on that, Mike? Right now, uh, I I got a lot of support through people. Uh, a lot, my, my son, who's with Homeland Security, got a lot of people. Some uh, a lot of people from DEA wrote letters um, to the to the uh, parole board, and he uh, he's already faced. I don't know what the results are. He's already faced it. They will know for me what the results of the hearing are. And he may be loosed on the street again. He and My son was the third person he killed. Yeah. So, I mean, if society is truly insane, you put this guy back on the street. And But maybe we are. Yeah, that's, that's the sad part. Well, uh, God bless Mike, you and your family, uh, and your son, who's a real hero. Uh, and and uh, I appreciate you coming on to our show today. Take care, Mike. Take care, buddy. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.